Good evening and welcome to the start of our 2017 Salon season! <laughs> to our first guest, um, so I was looking at the calendar um, once, once we'd booked Amor in um, and his book is set against the backdrop, um, well not against the backdrop, it's in the middle of um, the Russian Revolution and it transpires that a hundred years ago tonight, pretty much actually tonight, this very night, the Russian army sided with the Bolsheviks and Tsar Nicholas II abdicated and the Russian Empire fell. Shortly afterwards in Moscow, Count Alexander Ilyich Rostov, recipient of the Order of St. Andrew, member of the Jockey Club, master of the hunt and sometime poet, is condemned to spend the rest of his life under house arrest in the famously luxurious Hotel Metropole. Not in his usual, three, uh, his usual suite, 307, but in an attic with a window the size of a chessboard. What does he see? How does or doesn't the world outside his window change? Here, making his UK debut to talk revolution and room service, please welcome Amor Tolls. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. This is actually a kind of not a very Bolshevik room, is it? <laughs> I just no, realized. Well, I mean, they uh, had this too. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll right. get to that. Um, so, if you want to start by reading, and then and then we can we can talk more. Sure. And I'll, I'll just say, as I, as I've set up, uh, Damien has has sort of suggested this, but the book does open with this brief tribunal in the Kremlin, where uh, a 30 year old aristocrat is being interviewed, and in the course of this brief interview, it becomes clear that the count wrote a poem as a young man that's very popular with the revolutionary generation. So he has some fans in the upper ranks of the party, as it were. But on the other hand, it's also clear that he's an unrepentant aristocrat. And so as something of a compromise, the tribunal decides that the count can go back to the hotel where he's been staying, and if he ever comes out again, he will be shot. And with a snap of a gavel, he's marched out of the uh, Kremlin, across Red Square, and through the doors of the historic Metropole Hotel, which is where he then spends the next 32 years that's where I ask you to spend 32 years with him. Um, but, so the, the passage I'm gonna read, or the, the chapters, is from early in the book, and uh, having been uh, sentenced to house arrest, the count, uh, and moved to these smaller quarters, as Damien says, um, he begins to suffer some sense of claustrophobia uh, and depression, as it were. And uh, his first lucky break is that he, uh, he encounters a nine-year-old girl who's the daughter of a Bolshevik party uh, member, and uh, she kind of lures him out. Uh, she, she is sort of living in her house arrest in her own way to some degree, but she's not intimidated or bothered by the hotel. She thinks it's fun and fascinating, and so she kind of lures him out of his depression and shows him how uh, fantastic the hotel can be. Um, but so shortly after they meet, uh, she invites the Count to a formal tea when they've just met, and this is the chapter I'm going to read is the tea scene, as it were, and it's a chapter called Anyway. Five days later, the Count was pleased to accept a formal invitation to tea from his new acquaintance, Nina Kulikova. The engagement was for three o'clock in the hotel's coffee house at the northwest corner of the ground floor. Arriving at a quarter till, the Count claimed a table for two near the window. When at five past the hour, his hostess arrived in the manner of a daffodil, wearing a light yellow dress with a dark yellow sash, the Count rose and held out her chair. Merci, she said. Je t'en prie. In the minutes that followed, a waiter was signaled, a samovar was ordered, 
and with thunderclouds accumulating over Theater Square, remarks were exchanged on the bittersweet likelihood of rain. But once the tea was poured and the tea cakes on the table, Nina adopted a more serious expression, intimating the time had come to speak of weightier concerns. Some might have found this transition a little abrupt or out of keeping with the hour, but not the Count. Quite to the contrary, he thought a prompt dispensing of pleasantries and a quick shift to the business at hand utterly in keeping with the etiquette of tea, perhaps even essential to the institution. After all, every tea the Count had ever attended in response to a formal invitation had followed this pattern. Whether it took place in a drawing room overlooking the Fontanka Canal or a tea house in a public garden, before the first cake was sampled, the purpose of the invitation would be laid upon the table. In fact, after a few requisite pleasantries, the most accomplished of hostesses could signal the transition with a single word of her choosing. For the Count's grandmother, the word had been now, as in, now Alexander, I have heard some very disappointing things about you, my son. For Princess Polyakova, a perennial victim of her own heart, it had been oh, as in, oh Alexander, I have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and for young Nina, the word was apparently anyway, as in, you're absolutely right, Alexander Ilyich. Another afternoon of rain and the lilac blossoms won't stand a fighting chance. Anyway, <laughs> suffice it to say that when Nina's tone shifted, the Count was ready. Resting his forearms on his thighs and leaning forward at an angle of 70 degrees, he adopted an expression that was serious yet neutral, so that in an instant he could convey his sympathy, concern, or shared indignation as the circumstances required. I would be ever so grateful Nina continued, if you would share with me some of the rules of being a princess. The rules? Yes, the rules. But Nina, the Count said with a smile, being a princess is not a game. Nina stared at the Count with an expression of patience. I am certain that you know what I mean, those things that were expected of a princess. Ah, yes, I see. The Count leaned back to give his hostess's inquiry a more appropriate consideration. Well, he said after a moment, setting aside the study of the liberal arts, which we discussed the other day, I suppose the rules of being a princess would begin with a refinement of manners. To that end, she would be taught how to comport herself in society. She would be taught terms of address, table manners, posture. Having nodded favorably at the various items on the Count's list, Nina looked up sharply at the last one. Posture? Is posture a type of manners? Yes, replied the Count, albeit a little tentatively. It is. A slouching posture tends to suggest a certain laziness of character, as well as lack of interest in others, whereas an upright posture can confirm a sense of self-possession and a quality of engagement, both of which are befitting of a princess. Apparently swayed by this argument, Nina sat up a little more up upright. Go on. The Count reflected. A princess would be raised to show respect for her elders. Nina bowed her head toward the Count in deference. He coughed. I wasn't referring to me, Nina. After all, I am practically a youth like yourself. No, by elders, I meant the gray-haired. Nina nodded to express her understanding. You mean the Grand Dukes and the Grand Duchesses? Well, yes, certainly them. But I mean elders of every social class. The shopkeepers and milkmaids blacksmiths and peasants. Never hesitant to express her sentiments with facial expressions, Nina frowned. The Count elaborated. 
The principle here is that a new generation owes a measure of thanks to every member of the previous generation. Our elders planted fields and fought in wars. They advanced the arts and sciences and generally made sacrifices on our behalf. So by their efforts, however humble, they have earned a measure of our gratitude and respect. As Nina still looked unconvinced, the Count considered how best to make his point. And it so happened that at that very moment, through the great windows of the coffee house, could be seen the first hoisting of umbrellas. An example, he said. Thus commenced the story of Princess Galitzin and the crone of Kudrovo. One stormy night in St. Petersburg, related the Count, young Princess Galitzin was on her way to the annual ball at the Tushins. As her carriage crossed the Lomonosov Bridge, she happened to notice an 80-year-old woman on foot, hunched against the rain. Without a second thought, she called for her driver to stop the carriage and invited the unfortunate soul inside. The old woman, who was nearly blind, climbed aboard with the footman's help and thanked the princess profusely. In the back of the princess's mind may well have been the presumption that her passenger lived nearby. After all, how far was an old blind woman likely to journey on a night like this? But when the princess asked where the old woman was headed, she replied that she was going to visit her son, the blacksmith, in Kudrovo, more than seven miles away. Now the princess was already expected at the Tushins, and in a matter of minutes, they would be passing the house, lit from cellar to ceiling, with a footman on every step. So it would have been well within the bounds of courtesy for the princess to excuse herself and send the carriage on to Kudrovo with the old woman. In fact, as they approached the Tushins, the driver slowed the horses and looked to the princess for instruction. Here, the Count paused for effect. Well, Nina asked, what did she do? She told him to drive on. The Count smiled with a touch of triumph. And what is more, when they arrived in Kudrovo and the blacksmith's family gathered round the carriage, the old woman invited the princess in for tea. The blacksmith winced, the coachman gasped, and the footman nearly fainted. But Princess Galitzin graciously accepted the old woman's invitation and missed the Tushins altogether. His point expertly made, the Count raised his own cup of tea, nodded once, and drank. Nina looked at him expectantly. And then? The Count returned his cup to its saucer. And then what? Well, did she marry the blacksmith's son? <laughs> marry the blacksmith's son? Good God, certainly not. After a glass of tea, she climbed into her carriage and headed for home. Nina mulled this over. Clearly, she thought a marriage to the blacksmith's son a more fitting conclusion. But despite the shortcomings of history, she nodded to acknowledge that the Count had delivered a well-told tale. Preferring to preserve his success, the Count opted not to share his normal coda to this delightful bit of St. Petersburg lore, that the Countess Tushin had been greeting guests under her portico when Princess Galitzin's bright blue carriage, known the city over, slowed before the gates and then sped on. This resulted in a rift between the Glitzins and the Tushins that would have taken three generations to repair if a certain revolution hadn't brought an end to their outrage altogether. <laughs> it was behavior befitting a princess, acknowledged Nina. Exactly, said the Count. Then he held out the tea kicks, and Nina took two, putting one on her plate and one in her mouth. The Count was not one to call attention to the, short the social shortcomings of acquaintances, but giddy with his story's reception, he could not resist pointing out with a smile, there is another example. Where is another example? 
a princess would be raised to say please when she asked for a cake and thank you when she was offered one. Nina looked taken aback and then dismissive. I can see that please would be quite appropriate for a princess to say when she has asked for a cake, but I can see no reason why she should have to say thank you when she has been offered one. Manners are not like bonbons, Nina. You may not choose the ones that suit you best, and you certainly cannot put the half-bitten ones back in the box. <laughs> Nina eyed the Count with an expression of seasoned tolerance, and then presumably for his benefit, spoke a little more slowly. I understand that a princess should say please if she is asking for a cake because she is trying to convince someone to give her the cake. And I suppose if having asked for a cake she has given a cake, then she has good reason to say thank you. But in the second part of your example, the princess in question didn't ask for the cake, she was offered it. And I see no reason why she should have to say thank you when she is merely obliging someone by accepting what they've offered. <laughs> to punctuate her point, Nina put a lemon tartlet in her mouth. I concede that there is some merit to your argument, said the Count, but I can only tell you from a life of experience that Nina cut him off with a wave of a finger. But you have just said that you are quite young. Well, indeed I am. Well, then, it seems to me that your claim of a life of experience may be premature. Yes, thought the Count, as this tea was making perfectly clear. I shall work upon my posture, Nina said quite definitively, brushing the crumbs from her fingers, and I will be sure to say please and thank you whenever I ask for things. But I have no intention of thanking people for things I never asked for in the first place. Thank you. She'd get a cake and a slap, I think, at that point. Um, she's definitely got shades of Eloise about her, hasn't she, at that stage? She's um, you know, the, the other famous girl who lived in a hotel. Who has the run of a hotel, yes. She's a little tougher than Eloise in her way, but yes. Um, so the, the, the hotel is a real, a real place. Yes, I mean, it is. Right. Tell us about your, your experiences there, because I know that you stayed there when you were, when you were working in finance. Yeah, and so I, uh, you know, what I can tell you, I think, about the hotel that's, that's intriguing in a way is, is that when it was built uh, in 1905, when it was open, it was the best hotel in, in the city of Moscow, without question. It was the best hotel in Russia, made with the finest materials, the first hotel with telephones in the rooms and with uh, hot water in the rooms. Um, and uh, it was immediately sort of a hangout spot for the intelligentsia and the aristocracy in Russia. Um, but when the revolution occurred uh, and the Bolsheviks moved the capital from St. Petersburg back to Moscow, where it hadn't been for hundreds of years, um, they had a problem, which was that there was no infrastructure in Moscow to support a modern government. Um, so they seized the three best hotels in the city. And the Metropole became the second house of the Soviets. They kicked out all the party guys. Uh, they swept aside the luxuries and they filled the hotel with departments of all various kinds. And the ballroom, much like this one, uh, became an assembly hall for votes and for speeches. Um, the dining room, the fancy dining room was emptied and they put cots in there for the soldiers who were kept on hand. And the first constitution in Russia was written in suite 217 of the hotel. And, and right then and there, that should have been the end of the Metropole's life as a grand hotel. But this interesting thing happened in 1922, which is that uh, the major European nations, including this one, uh, recognized the Bolshevik government as the legitimate government in Russia. And they began sending ambassadors and trade representatives. And the Bolsheviks realized that if these sophisticated foreign, foreign visitors came from the West and they put them up in crummy proletarian hotels, uh, 
that they would go home to Paris and New York and London with the impression that the revolution was failing. So the Bolsheviks kicked all the party guys out of the hotel, and they put a uniformed doorman back out in front, bellhops were back in the lobby, champagne and caviar in the dining room, they reassembled an orchestra to play American jazz on a nightly basis, and suddenly the Metropole became an oasis of liberty and luxury, despite being across the street from the Kremlin and around the corner from the headquarters of the secret police. And that's what you know fascinated me by about the hotel, really. really. So um, you, you describe the, the 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 stripping away of luxuries, but they didn't get rid of everything, did they? I mean, if there were very nice chairs, for example, they would they would keep the chairs, but they would customize them in a particular way to yes. make their luxuriousness acceptable. Yeah, that's right. And what 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 is uh, was being referenced is that um, not not to put anybody off, but there are some footnotes in the book. Mostly, mostly for the fun of it. They're not academic footnotes. There's sort of this, this sort of voice hovering around the uh, periphery of the, the story. Most can can I just say, I find footnotes really annoying, and these didn't annoy me. Okay, thank yeah. you. See, right. okay. There As you a general go. rule, I won't read anything with footnotes or numbers in it. We're going we're um, we're to so put you on the back of the paperback okay. saying that. <laughs> the, footnotes, the footnotes didn't annoy me. You know, right, but sure. they're like an aside. You yes, because so, sort of the, the, most of the story is told from the perspective of the count, but there's this sort of jaded, very informed sort of Muscovite who's kind of weighing in occasionally. And, and so one of the things he, he, he weighs in on and, uh, is that, uh, and this is true from Soviet history, is that uh, there were enormous amounts of luxuries that had been seized by the Bolsheviks from, not only from the Tsar, but from the entire aristocracy. Um, and they would routinely live in incredible apartments uh, filled with, you know, Louis XIV chairs and, you know, all, you know, all kinds of, of French antiques and, uh, and British antiques. Um, but Every single piece of furniture or luxury that had been seized by the Bolsheviks uh, was, was put in a, in a register, in a big ledger, uh, and uh, they would nail a little brass plaque with a serial number to the bottom of the piece of furniture. And so the notion was that if you were the Bolshevik and you lived in this incredible palatial apartment with all these fancy, you know, priceless antiques, that you didn't own any of them. And, and they, so even though you could live like a king, you were still as poor as a pauper. And that was sort of the point of honor in the times. So it's like the National Trust, but you can actually sit on stuff. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Exactly okay. right. Okay. Um, and, and sentences like the Count, I mean, the Count is a, is a, it's a fictional man. Um, the hotel is real. Many of the events are real. But the Count is a fictional man. But were sentences such as the one that he was given, um, were they routine? Were, they, were people, you know, sentenced to house arrest? Or were they just, you know, shipped uh, off? There, there's, there's no, there's no uh, the, the Count's situation is an invention in the sense that I have come across no aristocratic figure who was sentenced to house arrest certainly not in a luxurious hotel. So that's just, that, is, that is an invention. Now, having said that, house arrest has existed in Russia for hundreds of years. The czars used it, uh, and to some degree the Soviets did too, in a variety of forms. Pushkin, uh, you know, who was the greatest poet in, in Russian history, you know, even viewed as that in his lifetime, you know, there's Shakespeare, uh, he was viewed as a little untrustworthy. And so the czar uh, at the time required that he live in an apartment around the corner from the, the Hermitage so they could keep an eye on him. You know, so they did things like that. In the Soviet era, they, they, and this, gets, this is in a footnote, I think, uh, one of the th things they had in the Soviet era is that if they, they didn't trust you. They thought, you know, you're a sophisticated, you know, uh, uh, well-educated person who wasn't quite, you know, towing the line. They wouldn't send you to Paris, you know, which would probably, you'd probably welcome. Uh, what they do is they give you the minus six. And the minus six would say that you can go and live anywhere you want in Russia, provided that it's not in one of the six biggest cities, including Moscow and St. Petersburg. So they basically would take these urban-raised, highly you know, refined, aristocratic, educated individuals and send them out to the boondocks and say, 
have fun, you know, assuming that they can't cause too much trouble there. So they had these kinds of things. And, and I guess the, the only other thing I'd say that I think is interesting is many people wouldn't anticipate this. After the revolution, nobody has real numbers on this, but maybe a th as much as a third of the nobility stayed in Russia. And a portion fled the country, went to Paris or England or New York. A portion, of course, were either arrested or executed or died in the, in the war. Um, but a significant portion remained behind. And very often they were allowed to live in the mansion they had grown up in, but they were given the, you know, the nursery on the top floor for their entire family. And you know, 15 other families would come in and live in the mansion in the finer rooms downstairs. So there were all kinds of strange arrangements that were, were practiced. And there's something I think particularly cruel about making people live at home, but not at home. Yes. There's something psychologically horrendous. Yeah, about and, the, and the Count makes that observation on his own behalf, saying that the Russians really invented exile at home. That, I mean, as he puts it, exile is as old as man. I mean, Adam gets exiled from, uh, from uh, paradise, and, you know, Cain gets exiled uh, shortly thereafter, um, you know, when he kills Abel. And so within the first 10 pages of the Bible, two of the first few four human beings have been sent into exile. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a long tradition of exile in humanity, but uh, as he says, you know, the Russians really invented this notion, send them into exile at home, you know, uh, because, you know, if you do, if you get sent into exile into a foreign country, you go through a point of suffering, and then eventually, you know, maybe you fall in love again, you find a home, you get a job, you, you start your life again. And, uh, and I think the Russians really sort of had this notion that if we keep you here just, just out of reach of Moscow, which you love so much, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like a, uh, you know, a Greek mythological torture. You know, it's just out of your reach, and so you never quite can go live your life anew. Yeah, I mean, the, the Count has this tiny window that he can see out of it. When he's in other parts of the hotel, he can see the world outside. And sometimes people will come in, and he will smell the change of the seasons on their clothes, the kind of the cold of winter, some snow, or maybe some spring flowers. And it's, it's incredibly touching and, and also torturous. How, how does he avoid going mad? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that the, 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 at the heart of it is uh, the Count has two significant advantages at the opening of the book. And, and you know, one is that he was raised uh, as a gentleman with a sort of in the, in the tradition of, you know, don't ever let your, don't ever, you know, show a sense of defeat. You know, don't give your enemies the satisfaction of showing that you feel like you've suffered a setback. A setback. You know, be upright and, and forward marching, um, which is what his grandmother taught him. But secondly, he's, he's a natural optimist. He was sort of born with the mindset that most people are probably good at heart and most things will probably work out for the best. And you know, this sort of perhaps illogical optimism uh, in conjunction with that stalwartness really kind of give him the strength to, to discover a new life in the hotel. Because as you say, at the opening of the book, he's lost his, his, his possessions, his family, his social standing, and he's about to witness as everything that he cares about Russian culture is gonna be uprooted by the Bolsheviks systematically. So what he must do is, within the confines of the hotel over his 30 years, find, establish new relationships and find new causes for happiness, however small, and ultimately uh, discover a new sense of purpose. And that's really what the book eventually becomes about. And what is the sense of purpose that he discovers? Well, that would, that would be giving that away. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, so, but the, the hotel starts off as a setting, but it does become it does become a character, and there's a sense as, as there is with Christodor, which we'll talk about, about in a bit, that yeah. that it's not just a place; it's al it almost has a personality, and it exists independently, kind of, of, of the people in it, and it keeps revealing new secrets about itself: doors behind doors, walls, walls behind walls. How much of the hotel did you see 
when you were there, did you kind of sneak about? Or yeah, you, just... you know, I, I, when, I, I, when I came up with the idea for this, this novel, I was actually in a hotel in Geneva, you know, not in, in Russia at the time, but I had been to Moscow and I knew where the hotel was, I knew a little bit of its history. And, and it, well, you know, I, I was uh, in the investment business and I, for 20 years. I'd written fiction since I was a kid, but I ended up in this digression professionally, and I spent 20 years uh, in the investment field. Quite a big digression. Quite a big years. digression. And uh, it worked out for me. But anyway, so uh, I, uh, I traveled for the firm a good deal. And I would spend a week in any given year in a hotel here in London, a week in any year in a hotel in Chicago, and San Francisco. And one year I was arriving at my hotel in Geneva, and I was like, for the eighth year in a row, and as I came into the, into the, through the door, I recognized some of the people lingering in the lobby from the year before. It was as if they had never left. And, and that's when I thought, you know, this is a nice hotel, but can you imagine if you actually had to live in it? And in the elevator on the way upstairs, I was like, you know what? That's kind of an interesting idea for a book. A guy gets trapped in a hotel for you know, an extended period of time. And, and right off the bat, I, I, you know, I went up in my room and I took the hotel stationery out and I began sketching these details and I knew that if I was going to trap my protagonist in a hotel for 30 years, he shouldn't be there by preference. It should be by force. And that's what got me thinking about Russia. Made that little, <laughs> that little connection, I guess. Um, but yeah, so but the Metropole does become sort of, a, as you say, a, a character. And I decided right as I started the book, uh, you know, writing the book, um, which was several years after having that idea, because I tend to outline for a couple of years, when I, I sat down to actually write chapter one, I decided I would go and live in the Metropole for a week, but not until the book was done. And, and uh, you know, I have a, you know, you might ask why that's true, and that's because I'm very wary of the role of applied research in the invention of narrative. And, you know, I think, um, you know, in America, at least right now, we have this irony that the, uh, most American readers today uh, uh, expect or even demand more factual accuracy from their novelists than from their presidential candidates, clearly. You know, it's, it's an incredible thing when you think about it. Um, but, but, you know, for, for, for you know, a long, long time, the novelist was assumed that he wasn't, like Shakespeare, we don't go to Henry V looking for a historical record of the Hundred Years' War. We look for the creation of characters in which history is a backdrop. And my novel is very much along those lines, and so I try to push back the applied research until I'm done inventing the first draft. And then I went and stayed in the hotel and had a good time. Seems like a great place to leave it. Thank you, Amor Tolls. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.